You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Thunder Quack Podcast. I am your host, Amanda Conkin, and today is a unique episode of Thunder Quack, a little bit of content to keep you going. Um, where I actually am releasing on Thunderquack a paper presentation that I did back in 2019. Uh, it might have been 2018, now that I'm thinking about it, for women in animation. Um, it was a, a symposium called Breaking the Glass Frame down in uh, LA uh, at the University of Southern California, USC. And uh, it was really awesome. I was invited. I submitted a paper proposal uh, to talk about some nerdy, geeky things uh, in animation. And I got to um, present a paper down there. And so the paper is called An Examination of Lauren Montgomery's Influence on Mainstream Superhero Pop Culture. Um, so, so basically what you're, what you're going to hear is, is the recording of me doing that presentation. So it is, I mean, the audio is me in a lecture theater um, talking uh, with different people about Lauren Montgomery's work um, and awesome nerdy things um, and a lot of sort of in stuff about representation in media and uh, it was speaking to basically the bridge between academia and content creators in animation um, specifically at this conference uh, which was right up my alley uh, totally my jam so I was really excited to be able to present there and I'm actually kind of excited to share it too on the internet um, and this is a unique uh, element for a Thunderquack podcast uh, special where there's actually slides that went along with the talk that I gave. So this is actually going to be released not only as audio podcast, but I think we'll upload it to our YouTube channel so that you can watch along with the slides. Uh, so if I'm ever referencing something there uh, that has been cut together with the slides that would have been shown at the time. Uh, I'm trying to make this as raw and as uncut as possible, so I know that there was probably lots of opportunities for me to add additional things, uh, like additional photos or additional um, information, but for now I just sort of wanted to put it as it existed when I um, gave the paper presentation. So I haven't modified anything, uh, and uh, except for maybe taking out a couple ums, although unfortunately I did not take out all of them. <laughs> You'll see it is me. This is me winging a paper basically as I had like my point my point form cards and, and went through my uh, presentation with my research. Um, but it was, it was very exciting. Um, talks about uh, Wonder Woman, talks about Legend of Korra, talks about uh, Legendary Defender, Voltron Legendary Defender. And anyways, it's it won't be everybody's jam, but I hope those of you that listen to it uh, will enjoy it. And just a little bit of extra random content for you talking about women in animation. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Amanda Conkin, and this is my presentation. It's an examination of Lauren Montgomery's influence on modern superhero pop culture. Uh, so what I mean about that is pop culture right now has a lot of superhero films uh, and franchises that are dominating the box office and television and uh, the conversation between many people. So I just want to examine that a little bit through the lens of animation and what uh, a storyboard artist, director, and producer in 2D animation, Lauren Montgomery, can offer to that conversation. Uh, so. On the slide, you can see actually the three parts that I'm going to be focusing on this is particularly through Lauren Montgomery's work, um, and that's her work uh, with the DC uh, animated universe, 
that includes uh, her role as a director on the Wonder Woman movie in 2009, as well as other properties like Superman Doomsday and Green Lantern First Flight. I'm also going to examine her role as a supervising producer on the Legend of Korra series. This was a spin-off from the very highly popular uh, The Last Airbender property uh, that Nickelodeon ran in the early 2000s. Um, and I'm going to follow up with an examination of uh, some of the work that she's currently doing as a co-executive producer, I believe now executive producer specifically on Voltron Legendary Defender, which is a reboot series uh, from DreamWorks currently running on Netflix. Um, in its seventh season. So the work that she's doing on that, uh, particularly in regards to the role of the character Pidge. Uh, so looking at this, let's talk a little bit uh, first about what I mean by superhero pop culture um, to situate us a little bit sooner. So these images that I've got on screen, I hope are very familiar to everybody. When we're talking about superheroes, many people understand what a superhero is when you see it. I'm dissecting this a little bit further. There are two prominent uh, comic book franchises or superhero franchises that dominate popular culture right now. One of those is DC Comics and the other is Marvel Comics. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. A lot of things happening in live action right now for Marvel. For this presentation, I'm specifically going to be looking at DC franchises. Uh, so those are the franchises that include Batman, Superman, uh, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman, uh, just because that's particularly relevant to the work that Lauren Montgomery's done in these spaces. Uh, but there's many different adaptations, and this is a multi-billion dollar industry, specifically when we look at superheroes. Um, some of the box office trends that we've been seeing is over uh, the course of, of the last few years, when you look at the numbers for just the market share of, of films in general has stayed pretty consistent, but there's been a dramatic increase in the amount of money that's going and being spent on these superhero prop franchises specifically. So I think that that's significant to examine in the current cultural conversation about what it is that we're funding, what we're looking forward to, and how Lauren Montgomery and the work that we do in animation and on the small screen have an influence and a, are part of this larger conversation that's dominating box offices right now. So to look at Laura Montgomery very specifically, I uh, first wanted to draw attention to a, a bit of her work. So she has been working as a storyboard artist for many years uh, prior to the work that I have uh, up on this screen. Um, but particularly, I want to focus in this presentation on the work that she's done directly as a director and as a producer or an executive producer. Um, so those would be the properties that I mentioned earlier. So she was really heavily involved in the DC animated uh, franchises, as well as um, the Legend of Korra and Voltron Legendary Defender. Um, I think it's really significant to look at her work in the DC animated properties as a director of these feature length films that were direct to DVD. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. One of them, probably the most notably, is that there are very few women directing superhero properties across the board, whether it comes to live action or to animation. In the DC uh, animated universe, there are a, a, a large number of films, and she is one of three female directors that have ever touched the properties. She's actually the um, only female director to work on the primary properties like uh, Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman. She directed the Wonder Woman movie in 2009 on her own with her own billing, same with the Green Lantern First Flight movie, um, and a couple of the other properties, and then co-directed a whole lot more uh, with some of the other people at, at DC. Um, but there's only other two other women that have been working on these properties, uh, Cecilia Aranovich and Jennifer Coyle. 
Um, and I think it's significant to note that both of those other women have actually worked exclusively on the DC Superhero Girls franchise, so it's specifically a female superhero property. So it just puts Lauren in a little bit of a different light when we're looking at these, because she's specifically working with um, high name, what, what you would sort of code as boy superhero properties. So it's a very interesting conversation to have, especially because she was doing it way back in the 2000s. I think one of the parts of this conversation that are important and when we look at the prolific nature of Laura Montgomery's work and why it's part of this larger conversation, I would actually draw to uh, your Ida, the statistics that I have up right now, which are from the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the work that USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative is doing. Uh, and I know it's primarily through top box office films. So the stuff that Lauren was working on on a DC animated um, franchise wouldn't necessarily be part of these numbers. But I think there's a correlation between the findings that the Annenberg Institute is finding in terms of what women are, what opportunities women are given, and that it's significant if a woman is given more than one opportunity that's important. As we see these numbers um, when it comes to large franchise films, that females are often um, given one opportunity. That's 83 or 84% of the females that were in the study that were included in these top films had only directed one film. So I think it's really important to note that Lauren not only was working in these spaces, but she was working often in these spaces. And I think it's important to contribute to that conversation. So I'm gonna start off uh, going through this, uh, examining her in DC universes, and then on to uh, the other two um, outlines that I talked about previously, um, the Legend of Korra and the uh, Voltron Legendary Defender. So if we look at Wonder Woman specifically um, as a property, uh, Laura Montgomery directed the 2009 animated film, uh, which actually did quite well um, as a direct-to-DVD show. Uh, when we look at superhero properties in general, there's a couple um, sources that I've drawn on to get some general data here. And um, one of the things I've been looking at is Jeffrey Brown did a great um, book collection where he examined the modern superhero in film and television, popular genre, and American culture. And one of the biggest things that um, Jeffrey Brown found was the idea that when you're looking at superhero franchises, they're based in comic books a lot of the time. And comic books have been around for the last century, and they're very much male-dominated. They're driven from male audiences. So one of the stumbling blocks that you come across when you're trying to adapt these franchises is that they often draw on very heavily male stereotypes. So some of the female characters that you're getting are going to be represented a little bit uh, more one-dimensional or a little bit less, um, less well-rounded than we maybe want to see them in our modern culture, and that a lot of it comes from where they're actually originated. So having these female voices in there to talk about characters is really important. Wonder Woman um, is kind of an interesting example as her origins as a superhero are already were already quite progressive at the time that she was created, and she keeps being this... Uh, soapbox for really progressive ideas. So Lauren was part of that conversation early on. Um, there's a lot of visual similarities I just like to point out in terms of the things that we're seeing on uh, animated properties and what goes into these live action adaptations. Some of that is because it is so iconic, uh, the, the images that you get with the, the death of Superman or with Wonder Woman being quite a badass. But it's it's significant. There is things that she's tying into that I think are coming through in all of these larger conversations. And when we see stuff on the big screen, um, there's a conversation that's been happening for many years on smaller screens and on animated spaces that I think is contributing to this conversation in a significant way. I don't know if anybody's seen the Wonder Woman movie. 
but it is actually quite progressive, very exciting, um, very fun. The characters, um, there's a lot of death in it, which is something that you don't necessarily see a lot in uh, animated properties uh, that are for younger audiences. Uh, there's real stakes. And the characters that were um, in this 2009 movie are actually very similar to the characters that you see in the 2014 uh, Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman. So Ares is the primary villain that you're encountering, and there's a lot of a conversation about Diana uh, and her relationship with her mother Hippolyta and the dynamics between that group and her wanting to leave. So there's a lot of things that uh, Lauren was uh, dealing with in, in uh, working with directing this script that are part of this larger, I mean, Wonder Woman, the 2014 live-action Gal Gadot movie, was a, a great box office sensation and a, and a great box office hit, and a lot of people were really drawn to these messages that they were seeing on screen. And this was a conversation that almost a decade ago Lauren was engaging with with her audiences, just on a much smaller scale. So looking at the significance of superhero culture, as I call it, so taking spaces where there's these super-powered people and putting them into fantastical situations, uh, Lauren had a, a tendency to continue to work in those spaces. So one of the properties that she moved on to, uh, first she was a storyboard artist in the last season of The um, Last Airbender. So that was the Nickelodeon property in the early 2000s that was quite a hit for the Nickelodeon channel. She was brought on as a supervising producer then for the uh, second version of this series called The Legend of Korra. So this actually takes place in the same world 70 years later, so after the events of uh, The Last Airbender. Um, and it's a series that ran for four seasons and it was a Nickelodeon series. So I want to look at this a little bit more because The Legend of Korra actually wound up being a cultural phenomenon in terms of the conversations that it started um, and the differences and the conversations that it started and the engagement from audiences. But more significantly, it's part of uh, what Nickelodeon was dealing with in the early 2010s um, in terms of uh, gender merchandising and consumer culture. There's a couple... Um, specific research papers and books that I've looked at for this particular section. Um, and I found it really interesting to reference uh, Sarah Bennett Weiser's uh, book, Kids Rule, Nickelodeon and Consumer Citizenship. So um, Bennett Weiser is uh, referencing a term consumer citizenship. So this idea of when we are talking about target audiences and specifically when it comes to animated properties and who will be making animated properties because who will buy toys? You turn children into a type of consumer citizen. So I'll get into that a little bit more. Um, but one of the other parts on this that was really useful for me is looking at um, screening gender on children's television, the views of producers around the world. So it's a compilation of a lot of different interviews that uh, Daphina Lemish did um, back in um, the mid-2000s, uh, just looking at producer views around the world and why they produce the things that they do on children's television. So both of these are quite relevant to the conversations around The Legend of Korra and what um, Lauren Montgomery would have been working with um, in The Legend of Korra. Uh, so the industry's primary goal is to get the most children watching at any given time. Gender representations then needed need to satisfy an economic imperative for advertisements and historically this has meant the division of programs into easily understood and thus easily divisible into markets girl and boy shows the reason that this is important is because the last airbender had a male protagonist ang was an airbender the premise of the story uh he could there's a world in which you can bend the elements earth air fire water people that can bend those elements are called benders 
You can only bend one element except for the chosen avatar, and the avatar can bend all four elements. It's an important part of the mythos of this world that he can bring all these different peoples together. So it is a it was a, a younger child's property. He was about 12 years old as a primary protagonist. Um, and you go through his journey trying to unite these different tribes in uh, in the world of the last airbender. <laughs> Going into the legend of Korra, the premise is that Aang has died. And he is reincarnated as this woman, Korra. She now becomes the airbender, and it's 70 years later in the same world. So what kind of things would she encounter as an avatar in this world? The creators of the series, The Legend of Korra, have talked about many times, specifically on an NPR interview, where they said that the thing that they encountered with Nickelodeon uh, broadcasters and with uh, executives is that they said that boys won't watch shows starring girls. Okay, so the idea that why would they put their hopes on a show where the lead is a woman? Um, because their primary market or the people that will buy toys and spend a lot of money on a property are actually going to be boys. So that's significant to this conversation because it influences on a lot of the things that you're finding, especially in the screen gender uh, book that I looked at, is that the primary narrative and mythos that goes through producers in this world is, or producers around the world, is that they believe this as well. That boys won't watch stories about girls, but that girls will watch stories about boys. I want to dissect that a little bit because I think it's really important in terms of what it is um, that we create and what we put on television and what we struggle against. Um, I want to draw your attention to the fact that there's a significant body of research surrounding gender stereotypes in play behaviors for young children. And one of the pervasive understandings that I garnered from this research is that while television producers put a lot of weight on this belief that girls won't buy toys, there's actually a significant correlation between what people watch on television and what they will play with. So it's not necessarily that girls will play with a toy less and therefore the show needs to be marketing them. It could be the other way around where you're actually receiving messages from the television and they are influencing the kinds of things that you'll play with. So um, specifically, there's a great um, recent study actually by Lisa Danella and Eric uh, Weinsgram uh, called Gender Typing of Children's Toys Causes Consequences and Correlates, uh, which really re-examined this uh, argument that what it is that children play with are a choice for the child and seeing that predominantly adults having a huge impact on what it is they say to the child, stereotypes from outside saying this toy is for girls, this toy is for boys, actually impacting what a, what a child will play with. So it's not so much that a child will, that a boy necessarily is drawn to a toy more so than a girl is, but it's that we type, typify that toy and tell them that it's just for boys. So that can be the same scene with television. The uh, Dora, so Nickelodeon has this great slate of programming where they try to hit this medium ground. They try to be pretty gender inclusive with their um, with their programming, uh, in uh, specifically in relation to uh, Disney Channel, which is more female skewed, and uh, Cartoon Network, which is a bit more male skewed. Nickelodeon tries to find this nice middle point, and they but they actually found that a lot of the programming that they would put on, they wouldn't find that much of a difference. So Dora, the Explorer, had a very large male audience. But when it came to merchandising, they would shy away from putting Dora on anything that was marketed to a boy, and the understanding that they would say that a boy wouldn't want to wear something that's a girl. So where is that coming from? Is that something that's driven by the toy market, or is that something that we're putting onto other people? And I would say that it's worth examining that in, re in a different paper, not right now, <laughs> but there's a conversation to be had about where these stereotypes come from and being able to break that down a little bit. Um, I'll draw you to a quote from Screening Gender just to wrap this part up a little bit about um, uh, 
toy play and, and stereotypes is that um, when she um, compiled all of these uh, thoughts from producers, one of the things that uh, Daphina highlighted is that whatever the reason or mechanisms involved, progressive change in the television industry that works for the benefit of children's well-being and health is negligible while preserving intent interventions that work to retain gender segregation advance rapidly and are driven primarily by po profit motives. So the idea that, well, we say that we can't produce something because it's not going to sell toys, that's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sort of way. A great example of that in recent culture is the Where's Ray hashtag. When The Force Awakens was set to premiere, uh, they do a Force Friday. So May the 5th, Force Friday. It's a big toy release of the upcoming property. Uh, it's a very, uh, I mean, if you're familiar with the Star Forge franchise, it's prolific in its toy merchandising. Well, one of the huge issues that they had with this is that Rey, being the primary character of The Force Awakens, was actually missing from primary toy marketing in that initial onslaught. Um, there was a package of, um, I would say, rather generic toys that they came out. They, they um, instead of including Rey in any of these packaging, they actually left her off entirely. And when you dig into that a little bit deeper and you look into the reasons for perhaps why this happened, is that toy consumers actually started putting her in there to begin with. But it's been found through a few interviews with anonymous sources, whatever you want to take that for, that the shift in that conversation for why we would remove toys actually came from the producers of the property itself rather than the toy merchandisers. So there's something really interesting in um, propagating this stereotype that we have as producers or as content creators that this is something that uh, will hinder us in our production. So I think it's very interesting to examine uh, that on its own as well. And it's just, uh, yeah, worth uh, contributing or worth incorporating into this conversation. Finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Voltron Legendary Defender. So this is the series that Laura Montgomery is currently working on. And actually, since I started writing this paper to now, the seventh season of Voltron Legendary Defender came out, and there's a whole lot of things that I wanted to incorporate into this paper that I maybe wasn't able to, um, specifically around LGBTQ representation in media. Um, there was a large... Um, conversation in the seventh season uh, surrounding queer baiting um, and the trope of barrier gays, um, in, specifically in regards to one of the primary characters of the show having a love interest that was established only in the one season for the love interest to be killed off immediately in that season. So there's a lot of really um, important things to unpack about that particular conversation and that particular narrative regarding LGBTQ representation. Um, but for the purposes of this paper, I do want to stick specifically to um, the uh, gender diversity and representation in the show, as demonstrated in the earlier seasons and the creation of the character of Pidge. I'd be happy to talk about the other stuff afterwards, though. Um, so specifically, if you look at Lauren Montgomery um, as one of the creators of Voltron, Voltron is a reboot of a series that existed in the 80s. So Voltron Legendary Defender was a big toy property, um, and basically the premise is that there are these four lions, Five lions, sorry, and they uh, are piloted by paladins, and those five lions can come together, much like the Power Rangers, to form a big uh, hero called Voltron, and uh, this hero uh, can save the day and save the universe from many perils. So in the original series, uh, these five paladins were all male. In the reboot of the series, there's a character named Pidge, and Pidge turns out over the course of the first season to actually be a woman. 
This is significant because it talks directly about the role that female creators can actually have in shaping the outcome and, and what we see on screen. So in many interviews, it's been um, explicitly stated that the reason for this shift and the reason why Pidge is uh, changed in terms of her gender and, and, and who she is on screen is because of the influence that Lauren Montgomery had on these early stages and these early conversations. Um, so one of the things that she's talking about in this quote um, is that it's not that difficult to have more female representation or more LGBTQ representation in the show. So Pidge's reveal was my way of doing that for gender representation. Having worked in action adventure animation for so long, it's predominantly male heroes and, pre and male characters and me wanting to have more of a female in there. So it's significant that the properties that Laura Montgomery has worked on have been very male dominated in this world of superheroes. And when she's working on this new property that also has the potential to be very male dominated, what role can she have in sort of shifting this conversation? I think that that's significant in that this main character that becomes a part of the team um, is, is explicitly female as you get into the uh, show. There's reasons for her having perhaps hidden her identity off the start. Um, but the thing that I think is most significant is that she actually is quite a feminine character in the things that she's allowed to take on and the, the role that she has within that group, which I think is significant for many reasons that I should get into, but I'm not. Um, so one of the reasons why I wanted to point out this particularly in terms of uh, the importance of female creators having this voice and what you actually see on screen, uh, I'd actually draw your attention to some of the research that I grabbed from from the study of women in television and film, San Diego State University, specifically that done by Dr. Dr. Martha Lozen. Um, so she has a lot of research that she's done over the last couple of years, and there's some statistics from 2017 and 2018 that show a direct correlation between having female creators um, in, uh, so specifically the first one is uh, female creators, um, either a woman director and or writers in films, and the, the amount of um, protagonists or people that would actually show up on screen based on the females that were behind the screen. Um, so that's directly exactly what we see uh, with, with Lauren and, and Voltron. So this, a similar research here in terms of uh, in 2018, so the more recent study, so comparing television programming, so this first one is film, the television programming's um, the same thing. If you have women creators versus programs exclusively with male creators, you see a significant decrease in the amount of major female characters and the directors in these series, editors and writers that are female. So mm -hmm. there's a significant correlation. And I think that's a really important conversation to have about why it's so important that these females are behind the scenes making these choices. In conclusion, all the research that I'm reading, one of the things that were most upsetting or a little bit uh, disheartening is that why hasn't there been more change? There's a lot of articles that I read where if you're in a superhero world, superheroes, science fiction, fantasy, we can imagine that men can fly, but not that women can save themselves. So um, Carol Stabile very um, adequately pointed that out in one of her articles, and I think that it's really significant here um, in this conversation. Why is it that in these, these spaces of fantasy, we can't imagine women having a bit more agency? And I think that the conversation is starting to shift, and I think creators like Lauren Montgomery are, are doing that on, on these smaller screens. Um, and I'm hoping that that conversation carries forward into um, more mainstream and, and, uh, and uh, mainstream pop culture. So thank you very much. Follow the Thunderquack podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching the Thunderquack podcast. You can support us in three ways. First, by heading to the podcast service of your choice and leaving a rating and review. Second, by going to store.thunderquack.com to pick up some merch from your favorite podcasts. 
And last but not least, by heading to patreon.com slash thunderquack to kick in with your monthly pledge of support and get cool rewards like early access, ad-free episodes, and extended episodes. The Thunderquack Podcast is the official podcast of thunderquack.com. Head to thunderquack.com to discover more great podcasts.